From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield. We begin with a shocking development. The Trump administration has been caught in lies. What did he know and when did he know it? White House Chief of Staff John Kelly is under scrutiny for his handling. Bottom line, my sources say John Kelly lied and turned his team into liars without them knowing. Uh, Sarah Sanders is either lied to or she is willingly lying to the American people. How do they put this behind them? Another week, another fiasco. A top White House official, Rob Porter, shamed out of his job by spousal abuse allegations the administration knew about for many months but did not act upon and clumsily tried to cover up. Raj, when the White House first became aware of these allegations? Well, um, I know there's been some reports about the chief of staff. Uh, He became fully aware about these allegations um, yesterday. You say fully aware, was he partially aware? Is the White House still maintaining that John Kelly really had no idea about these allegations of domestic abuse until this story broke? I can only give you the best information that I have, and that's my understanding. Then there was the hush money to a woman whose working name is Stormy Daniels, a story denied for weeks. A former Trump lawyer released a letter signed by Stormy Daniels denying the story. It says rumors that I have received hush money from Donald Trump are completely false. And now finally admitted to. Another giant story developing overnight. The president's personal lawyer confirms that he paid adult film actress Stormy Daniels $130,000. When an administration so often demonstrably lies, from inauguration crowds to supposed millions of illegal presidential voters, how ever to know when tugging a thread will reveal a damning truth, not just the latest embarrassment, but an unraveling? Maybe, maybe the answer is when the truth has immediate consequences. When FBI Director Christopher Wray disputed the administration's timeline on the Rob Porter affair during an unrelated Senate Intelligence Committee hearing earlier this week, Republican Trey Gowdy launched an investigation. This is Trey Gowdy of Benghazi Hearings notoriety, not exactly a Democratic stooge. Who knew what, when, and to what extent And if you knew it in 2017, and the Bureau briefed him three times, then how in the hell was he still employed? Gowdy is fixing to tug at the very thread that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly's job is hanging by, during which process the rest of the cover-up is apt to be laid bare. On the Stormy Daniels matter, Trump's lawyer Michael Cohen is now at pains to explain why he paid $130,000 just before the 2016 election to squelch a brewing scandal about a porn actress and Donald Trump, and who might have reimbursed Cohen for his outlay. His latest explanation, ironically enough, is he was paying to suppress a lie. This is CNN correspondent M.J. Lee quoting Cohen. He says, just because something isn't true doesn't mean that it can't cause you harm or damage. I will always protect Mr. Trump. This confession, according to the New York Times, began with a lawsuit that obliged Cohen to submit an official declaration to the Federal Elections Commission. And of official declarations, official questions inevitably flow. Till now, notably in the matter of the June 16 Trump Tower meeting with Russian emissaries, the Trump administration has heaped lie upon lie to try to stay ahead of new revelations. 
something like a Ponzi scheme, requiring ever-new infusions of cash to cover the most recent false promises. But the pace eventually becomes unsustainable. And the truth claims casualties. This week, we look at the messiness of truth and its manipulation by governments, by righteous movements, and even by the most tragically victimized individuals with various motives, but all ultimately for the purpose of controlling the narrative. It is far too soon to know if the Trump administration has, shall we say, lost the thread, but as we shall see, such struggles to influence public perception are to be found everywhere. Coming up, you want to portray a scourge of undocumented desperados? Have the press do it for you. If you look at these ICE press releases, it'll be like, murderer deported, child molester deported, person who served in a foreign army and killed all these kids deported, but it's never like, we deported somebody's mom. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. This week's show is dedicated to the myriad ways truth, incomplete truth, and its evil cousin, the out-of-context fact, can either serve or bedevil political interests. A case in point this week was the fate of immigration reform, in which a bipartisan Senate bill failed to overcome the countervailing narratives of dangerously porous borders and cruel racist xenophobia. The big losers here, both Donald Trump's wall and the so-called dreamers, beneficiaries of an Obama-era program offering temporary residency to undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as kids. The bipartisan agreement would grant a 10 to 12-year route to citizenship for the so-called dreamers. The plan would also provide $25 billion over a decade to build a wall and other border security measures. Even after the bill died in the Senate, though, the battle for defining the impact of illegal immigration rages on. The president speaks of bad hombres, but as immigration beat journalist Gabby DeValle reminds us, the evidence does not support his case. So the New York Times reported last January that specifically male immigrants are between one-half and one-fifth as likely to be incarcerated as people who were born in the United States, which generally means that the data shows that immigrants are committing fewer crimes than non-immigrants. That applies to both undocumented immigrants and people with visas and green cards because Even if you're here with a visa or a green card, you can still be deported if you commit a crime. So people are essentially trying not to get on ICE's radar. Because the daily truth for every undocumented resident remains the same, eluding arrest and deportation by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. 
Just switch on the news. A 39-year-old man, Jorge Garcia, who came here from Mexico when he was 10 years old, undocumented, and because of the crackdown of the Trump administration, he was being deported. He was saying goodbye to his wife and his two kids. Immigration agents today raided nearly 100 7-Eleven stores in 17 states and Washington, D.C. At least 21 suspected undocumented immigrants were arrested. For years, the federal government left Guadalupe Garcia de Reos alone. Not anymore. Protesters gathered in Phoenix overnight, even holding the wheels of a government immigration van in a desperate move to stop it from taking her back to Mexico. But if the news is supposed to help us distinguish fact from propaganda, Devalle says the press is often a poor arbiter. Many news outlets, she says, are reporting on deportation simply by lifting text verbatim from the administration. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at these ICE press releases, it'll be like murderer deported, child molester deported, person who served in a foreign army and killed all these kids deported. But it's never like we deported somebody's mom. Okay, so that's the ICE press release. But the press's job is to put things into perspective, not to reprint the government's assertions. And you say we are many of us failing at that. Because when ICE does these big roundups, these big arrests, they'll publicize it and they'll say, we arrested 100 people, 70 of them have criminal records. And that may be true, but then they'll give you a list of four people, for example, or five people, the most egregious offenders on the list. And because a lot of newsrooms are so under-resourced, they'll just print that without thinking about the context, without thinking about enhanced enforcement. And ultimately, it's damaging. Now, of course, I knew you were going to say that, and we've spoken to you before this (laughs) uh, recorded interview. And so I've come prepared with a fairly standard ICE press release from March 2017 about a series of arrests in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And in fact, I'd originally planned to read from the press release itself, but why bother? Because we have local Washington, D.C. area TV stations to simply read it for us. According to Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers, 82 people were arrested between March 26th and 30th. 68 of them were convicted criminal aliens. Of the remaining 14, two had ties to the MS-13 street gang. Two had orders of final removal. Three overstayed visas. One was wanted by foreign law enforcement. One was a verified human rights violator from Somalia. A 40-year-old man from Trinidad had drug and gun convictions. And a 35-year-old from Guatemala had a DUI conviction. They are all subject to immediate deportation. Sometimes it's rearranged, but it's generally the same information, same wording. It's an easy tip-off when they say criminal aliens, for example, because it's like ICE's favorite term. Okay, so you can understand why local TV stations, which don't have a whole mess of reporting resources, would be likely to use the prepared text over some B-roll footage of roundups taking place. And it's equally unsurprising that the Daily Caller ran the same story and that Breitbart and the like routinely publish articles cribbed entirely from ICE press releases. But it's not just the right-wing media and low-resource TV stations. Yeah, the Washington Post had a really similar piece that was basically the ICE press release plus a paragraph about how similar arrests happened under the Obama administration, but now Trump is arresting more people. 
And that was really the only thing that was added in terms of context or additional reporting outside of the press release. Now, in fairness, this was kind of an outlier for the Washington Post, which has usually been pretty good at the due diligence. In a separate piece, they actually do contextualize ISIS numbers, Brett? Yeah, so in the press release, it says that 68 of the 82 people arrested had previous convictions for, quote, crimes like armed robbery, larceny, and drug distribution. But other people had been arrested for DUIs or traffic offenses. And it was also the Washington Post which reported that about half the immigrants arrested by the Trump administration by that point either had no criminal record or had only committed traffic offenses ranging from DUIs to driving without a license. If you're looking at the news, especially local publications, local TV stations reporting that this many criminals were deported, this many criminals were arrested, then you'll have this link in your mind between immigration and crime, even if that link isn't actually there in reality. Another thing about the way these press releases are constructed, since they are the harvest of raids, taking a lot of people in custody at once, is that we are under attack by swarms of dangerous, undocumented immigrants. But the underlying crimes haven't necessarily just all happened yesterday, right? Right. So the way that a lot of ICE arrests work is that if you've committed a crime, let's say within the past 20 years, or even been arrested, your fingerprints are in your state's Department of Correction system. So ICE can go through those databases and get people's fingerprints, information, home address, whatever, And I've talked to lawyers from Brooklyn Defenders and other organizations who have told me that their clients have been arrested by ICE recently for crimes committed 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And a lot of things that people get picked up for aren't even crimes anymore. Like in New York City, for example, turnstile hopping, fare beating, fare evasion, whatever you want to call it, you can get a ticket for that now instead of just being arrested. But if you did it 20 years ago, then you're in the database forever. What, in your view, are the basic elements that should be included in any story about ICE enforcement? I think just contextualizing the press release is the most important thing. Reach out to a local immigrants' rights organization to get the other side, the other perspective, for a more full picture. And these things don't necessarily take a lot of time. ICE has public information officers all over the country. If you find the one for that particular region and you call them or email them and you say, hey, you put out this press release saying that you arrested this many people, can you send me a list of the crimes committed? They'll send it to you. Even that is helpful because they don't necessarily always break it down saying 20 people had DUIs and one person was a murderer. The press releases are crafted to create a specific narrative and It's not just that you should question ICE's press releases. You should question any press release as a journalist. That's part of your job. Now, I'm curious. The Trump administration obviously has built its image on immigration issues. But the previous administration, Obama's, deported 3 million people or some enormous number. Did they also try to skew public opinion by stacking the deck in press releases to suggest that the deportees were more dangerous than they actually were? Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely not a problem that started with the Trump administration. This predates Trump. This goes back to Obama and even Bush, I would say. I mean, this isn't necessarily a new problem, but I do think that, especially given an administration that has proven it to be so hostile to immigrants, that it's even more damaging than it was under Obama. Gabby, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Gabby Devaye is a staff reporter for The Outline. The Washington Post declined our request for comment. 
In New York City, the most high-profile of these ICE detention cases is Ravi Ragbir, executive director of the immigrant advocacy group New Sanctuary Coalition. He captured the imagination of the immigrant community and the press last month after being detained during a routine ICE check-in. To avoid being sent packing without warning or recourse, Ragbir employed activist tactics and arrived with backup. When he and others had to go check in with Immigration and Custom Enforcement, ICE, he would bring a couple of hundred followers with him. Errol Lewis, the host of Inside City Hall, a politics show on cable station New York One. Sort of be a witness there and maybe kind of make the government think twice before seizing him or anybody else and deporting them and implementing a removal order. The government has indeed taken that step, however, and it led to chaos in the streets. He had hundreds of supporters there. But ICE has been trying to deport him. A judge has temporarily stated, but the order remains in effect. As a poster child, it turns out, in your reporting, he's not necessarily the greatest example of injustice. Why is that? This was not someone whose only offense was immigration itself plus a minor violation. He was part of an identity theft and mortgage fraud ring for a short time in the late 1990s. He signed the confession saying that he worked with somebody to create fake loans in the name of unsuspecting real people and to then take uh, 1% of the loan proceeds. And a lot of people went to jail for that particular scheme. He happened to be one of them. And a lot of people were victimized because their identities were stolen for this mortgage fraud racket. That's what I wrote just recently in my column. And it, it, it sort of put me at odds with a lot of what the media voices and certainly the activists have been saying here in New York City, which is that identity theft is not victimless If you just discover someday that somebody has taken out a $400,000 loan in your name and the company wants its money back, your social security number, your credit rating, your prospects for employment can all negatively be affected by that. And it takes quite a while to straighten it out. So my main point was to try to make clear to people, this is not a DUI this was serious harm. And then, you know, of course, there's an open question over whether or not he's fully paid his debt to society by going to prison. In this case, yeah, most likely he has. There was probably some restitution that had to be paid. I don't know if he actually paid it or not. And then there's the question of those unsuspecting victims of identity fraud. And that's usually where the immigration activists get really quiet because they don't ask. And in my opinion, they don't really care. The government certainly has a tactic of wanting to get rid of people and then kind of trolling for past offenses so that they will have a pretext to send them back where they came from. And there comes this problem of battling truths. There could be the truth of the government's bad faith battling the truth of this guy's really unsavory past. How are we supposed to process that? I think the main thing to do is to process it, to not simply skate over it, retreat into one's ideological preference corner, and then just battle from there and disregarding everything that doesn't help your argument. I mean, that seems to be a lot of what's going on. You do a little bit of research, you can find, you know, Ravi Ragbir suing the Obama administration and in turn 
being pressured right back by that same Obama administration. To the extent that this is political, you've got to add that context, that it's not simply partisan, you know, unless you just want to bash Trump and, uh, and, and defend an immigrant hero, which is kind of the shortcut, which a lot of folks in the media seem to be taking. All right, look, so it behooves activist groups, movements, or even those trying to find plaintiffs for a Supreme Court case to come up with someone who is a great poster child for the cause. That's the whole point. And if they maybe leave out some of the detail to focus on the most dramatic aspects of the story, well, that's a judgment they have to make. You can't find the right martyr just everywhere. The movement has what I would call a Claudette Colvin problem. Nine months before Rosa Parks was arrested for not moving to the black section or giving up her seat on segregated public accommodations, Claudette Colvin refused to do so. And in fact, it was her name that was one of the plaintiffs on the suit that actually did desegregate the buses in Montgomery in the 1950s. But she wasn't the ideal person. She was removed violently. She didn't just submit to arrest. She fought with the police who tried to remove her. It turned out that she was a pregnant teenager. She was dealing with some married man, and it was all very messy. And so they kind of shuffled her to the back and pushed Rosa Parks to the front. The movement has a problem of that sort with Ravi Rogbeer, but it's their problem. It's not our problem. It is not the media's problem to try and find the right person for them to put forward. In fact, uh, they should put forward whoever they do, knowing that we are going to subject that person to searching scrutiny, and we're not going to take at face value uh, the story that they put in front of us, no matter how appealing it may be. I wonder if this whole thing is sort of an exercise in unreality, because, yeah, you may be a good representative of the grievance we have, but do you play the cello too? (laughs) It's a permanent problem. It's a permanent problem for activists. It's a permanent problem, frankly, for editors and producers and journalists. How do you connect with an audience? Well, audiences, aside from a few strange people, I happen to be one of them, are not necessarily going to be moved by charts and graphs and statistics and explanation of policy and of systems. But that's not how most people operate. The way most people operate is, yes, you have to show them an appealing person. You have to make them fall in love with this person or at least understand and connect with them on some level. And that is how most stories are told. I mean, that's how political parties find the ideal candidate for a particular race. Gotcha. But does that empathy in the public's mind transfer to some, you know, poor schmo who's being deported, who doesn't play the cello, who hasn't cured cancer, who isn't a riveting speaker. Is there a risk in putting all the attention on somebody who isn't really in any way representative of the class of people you're trying to protect? Well, of course. I mean, look, when the DREAM Act has been debated here in New York at the state level and federally, the activists always do what I guess I would do, too, if I were in their position. You know, they find some incredible honor student who's about to cure cancer, you know, volunteering down at the hospital when they're not getting all A's in high school and all of this kind of stuff. That's lovely. But somewhere in the back of your mind, and I don't think it's just me as a longtime journalist, I think for most people, there's got to be a little bit of a nagging sense that, you know what, that's not everybody. This is somebody extraordinary. Maybe we just need an exception for this person. And then everybody else can get abused or mistreated or deported or subjected to all kinds of other things. I mean, I think it creates a certain amount of confusion 
when you get into this. Now, political parties, social and political movements, they're in the myth-making business. We in journalism are very much not in the myth-making business, with a couple of minor exceptions. We're just not supposed to be involved in that stuff. I want to think that our audiences are sophisticated enough and mature enough that they'll actually accept somebody, warts and all, and you just tell the story the right way. You say, look, so-and-so is not perfect. So-and-so doesn't always call his mother on Sunday. You know, so-and-so is getting failing grades and, you know, kind of isn't that much fun to be around and doesn't really get into extracurricular activities because they're busy smoking pot on the weekends, okay? But they have a story to tell. And there are a lot of people like them. And let's be grown-ups and try and handle this. I personally would love to see that story more often because it would set the mood for an adult decision, a messy, sticky decision about imperfect people. If we can get people in the habit of doing that, we'll have done a great service, I think, to American democracy. Errol, thank you very much. Thank you. Errol Lewis is the host of Inside City Hall, a politics show on the New York One News Channel. He's also a professor at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. His recent column in the Daily News is financial crimes convict Ravi Ragbir, an ill-chosen immigrant icon. Coming up, can relatively small lies serve a larger truth? Any refugee camp is a place where false narratives flourish. People figure out that if you have a more dramatic tale, you might end up with more aid. And I know that if it were my own family and I needed a rice ration, I'd probably do the same thing. This is On The Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Earlier this month, President Andrzej Duda signed a law that outlaws accusations that the Polish nation was complicit in Nazi war crimes during the Second World War. The law criminalizes a broad range of speech, from blatant misinformation to uncomfortable historical facts. Polish citizens can no longer refer to Polish death camps as opposed to Nazi death camps like Auschwitz within Poland. Indeed, the Polish government did not collaborate with the Nazis, but the new law also forbids speaking about the individual Poles or whole Polish communities that did. 
The defamation law establishes a punishment of up to three years in prison and has elicited howls from around the world, especially Israel. University of Michigan sociology professor Jean-Viev Zubrisky says that the controversy is the latest convulsion in Poland's struggle over its own identity. Jean-Viev, welcome to On the Media. Thank you. It looks like the ruling party, the law and justice government, the nationalist ruling party, is just enacting historical revisionism. Is that what's going on? It is indeed involved in what's called the politics of history. And this politics of history is fought along several lines, the the most important of which is the history of World War II in Poland. So what you referred to as, for example, criminalizing the reference of those camps as Polish, this is primarily meant for populations outside of Poland, because within Poland, no one refers to those camps as Polish. But it does seek to control speech, discourse, academic research on the participation of Poles in crimes against Jews during the war. Unlike other European governments that folded and in some case became quizzling governments, the Polish government did no such thing. Exactly. So there was no official collaboration by the Polish state. The Polish state was dissolved, actually, and was in exile in London. So this is not really disputed. What's disputed is how much collaboration happened on the ground by ordinary Poles. And this is especially difficult to take for Poles now because Poland was a victim of World War II. They were invaded by the Nazis. Several concentration camps were first created for the Polish intelligentsia. Six million Polish citizens perished during the war, half of whom were Jewish. And so the memory of the war is one of extreme suffering and of victimhood. And this folds very neatly into long-standing narratives of Poland as the Christ of nations from the 19th century, that Poland had suffered at the hands of very powerful neighbors. The identity of Poland and of Poles is created around that narrative of martyrdom and victimhood. So it makes it especially difficult now after the fall of communism with less taboo, less supervision also from the regime and access to new archives that led historians to revisit the role of Poles in the Holocaust. I'm thinking here, for example, of the book by Princeton University professor Jan Gross, who published a book in 2001 called Neighbors that tells the story of a very violent pogrom in eastern Poland in the small town of Jedwabne in the summer of 1941, in which ethnic Poles tortured, murdered their Jewish neighbors, burning them alive in a barn. So this book created a watershed, very significant public debate and soul-searching about Polishness also, because if Poles are victims, can they be perpetrators? Since then, the politics of the country have changed, and now the Law and Justice Party, a far-right, hyper-nationalist regime is in place that itself has been fanning the flames of victimhood and the notion of an insult to the Polish nation. Absolutely. So this government has been, even when it was not in power, was uh, rejecting any notion that Poles had participated in crimes against Jews. And now that they're in power, they're really pushing that agenda. They're reacting against what they call the politics of shame that previous governments in the 2000s have been 
engaging with. And this is what this law is coming in to actually to reinforce their politics of history. They're telling Poles now it's time to stand tall and to be proud of being Polish again. Isn't it possible, though, to hold two apparently opposing ideas in your head at the same time, that as a nation, Poland behaved righteously, but significant portions of the population were reprehensible? Why is that so difficult to embrace? Because I think it hits the core of Polish narratives of victimhood. It hits at the very core of Polishness. That's not to say that everyone refuses to acknowledge the participation of Poles in the Holocaust. And actually, there's a very important segments of society who have been actively engaged in reconciliation and trying to actually learn more about the, the role of Poles in the Holocaust. And the law itself right now is under very, very harsh critique by individuals, former ambassadors to Poland, scholars, students. And the Supreme Court. The president sent it to the Supreme Court for examination. We'll see what they will do. But regardless of what the court does, the damage is done. If one young student is is starting a dissertation project now on the history of programs during World War II, you know, that person might decide to abandon, to drop that project and study something that's safer, given the criminal charges that could be brought against him or her. The government's claim that it is merely trying to protect the national reputation rings a little hollow when you look at other initiatives of the law and justice government, like, for example, to limit kosher slaughter. Under what pretext, I have no idea. But, you know, suddenly nationalism begins to look a whole lot like institutionalized anti-Semitism. Absolutely. And actually, it's anti-Semitism and anti-refugee also. So Poland has refused to admit their quota mandated by the EU of refugees. And there have been crimes and violent crimes against uh, refugees, people of color, and some Jews also in the last couple of years. It's now common to see neo-fascist groups walking and chanting in the streets without any repercussions. In Turkey, a scholar studying the Armenian genocide is at very similar risk of being imprisoned for insulting the Turkish state. Will it come to that? It might. And actually, Jan Gross was interrogated in the last few years several times and was possibly a target of that new law. And actually, previous versions of that law that was on the books already were nicknamed the Gross's Law because it was widely understood that they were to target that type of scholarship and from that specific scholar. So I wouldn't be surprised that more investigations and some kind of harassment would be made against scholars who conduct research that's not deemed appropriate for the good reputation of Poland. Uh, Look, I'm asking these questions not only because I'm concerned about European nationalism in general and the Polish body politic, but because it all sounds very eerily familiar You know, I don't see a gigantic gulf between law and justice and make America great again. Is there anything that we as Americans can learn from what is taking place in Poland right now? 
Oh my, that's a big question. Uh, Poland is in the midst of, of of a crisis, but a crisis that's been in the making for longer than than the one in the U.S. So actually, the U.S. might learn that going that down that rabbit hole is very problematic, and it's very difficult to kind of emerge out of this. This process of delegitimation of certain media outlets, certain public figures, intellectuals, and scholars, is very problematic because then basically there is no longer any truth with a capital T, in a way. Even scientific activity is being questioned. Uh, yeah, and I literally at this moment don't know which country you're speaking of. Well, actually, I was talking, I was thinking, hmm, the same thing actually in the U.S. as well with climate change denial and all sorts of very important issues. This is all very worrisome and, and, and depressing, and I'm not sure actually that Poland has much to teach right now to the U.S., but hopefully civil society can teach each other and activists can borrow strategies from each other to counteract these policies and discourses. Jean-Viev, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bob. Jean-Viev Zabriskie is a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan. What follows includes disturbing details about what's happening to the Rohingya, a primarily Muslim ethnic minority group from Western Myanmar. If you're with small children, you may wish to spare them this conversation. In the past five months, unspeakable violence has forced nearly 700,000 Rohingya to seek shelter across the border in Bangladesh. Reports of rape, murder, and arson at the hands of the Burmese military has led the United Nations to warn that genocide may be taking place. You've likely been acquainted with the human toll. A new report on the Rohingya refugee crisis in Myanmar says there's mounting evidence of genocide in that country. Amnesty International is accusing the Burmese military of murdering and raping and torturing Rohingya civilians in an ongoing campaign human rights group says may amount to crimes against humanity. Older women were stamped on, and then the military grabbed them by the hair and slaughtered them. Hannah Beach, Southeast Asia bureau chief for The New York Times, has been reporting on the Rohingya, also pronounced Rohingya, and the scope of their trauma. Take, for instance, the story of a 15-year-old who was gang-raped by Burmese soldiers and who bears a scar where one of her attackers bit her cheek. She is alone now in a refugee camp in Bangladesh. Or the story of four young girls under the age of 13 who are living with their uncle in a refugee camp. Their father had been taken into custody and was feared dead, and their mother had been killed when their home was burned by Burmese soldiers. Both horrible stories. But only one is true. Truth, it turns out, even from the victims of oppression, is yet another casualty of the ongoing catastrophe. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Tell us, please, about the story of the four young girls who told you that their parents were dead back in Myanmar. I was in Bangladesh in December, and I was working on a story about vulnerable populations in the Rohingya refugee camps. And for one of the stories, I wanted to document the fact that there are thousands of Rohingya kids who had arrived in Bangladesh unaccompanied. You know, often their parents had been killed back in Myanmar, or they'd lost their families somehow in the chaos of trying to escape their villages, which were often burned. 
I met these four little girls and they said that their father was presumed dead, that their mother had died when their house was set on fire. Their uncle already lived in the camps and he took them in, even though he had a whole bevy of kids of his own. And they were tiny and brave and their story was incredibly compelling. But as I began to speak to these kids, it's, I don't know how to explain it exactly. Maybe it was just sort of a gut feeling. Something just didn't feel right. And the kids had each very different stories of how they ended up in Bangladesh. They seemed kind of strangely unconcerned about their father's death. It took three days, but suddenly this much less palatable truth emerged, which is that the supposed uncle was actually the girl's father. He had three wives, and the mother of these four girls, who was back in Myanmar, had only been 12 years old when he married her. So suddenly we're dealing with child marriage. So if I'd stopped at the initial story that had been told, it would have been this incredibly heart-tugging tale, but it, it wasn't true. What happened to those young girls is traumatic. Their village was burned. Their mother was left behind. They're in a refugee camp across the border. The story's bad enough. Why embellish? I think refugee camps, you know, not just the refugee refugee camps, but any refugee camp is a place where false narratives flourish. People figure out that if you have a more dramatic tale, you might end up with more aid. And I know that if it were my own family and I needed a rice ration, I'd probably do the same thing. I would cry, I would hold up my baby, I would highlight the worst of what happened to me, or I would take sort of my community's general experience as my own. Everyone who ended up in the Rohingya camps had something that was clearly terrible that compelled them to escape Myanmar for this overcrowded camp in a foreign country. They're all victims. But that doesn't mean that everything that we're told is, is, is true. So it's a question of survival, and the most help goes to those with the most harrowing experiences. And you do what it takes to keep your family alive. But in this case, there are larger consequences because the Burmese military then claims that the genocide talk is all a lie, all an exaggeration. Truth is their enemy, except in this case when it becomes their friend. Yeah, the Myanmar government has barred independent journalists and even UN investigators from visiting the epicenter of violence. They've jailed two Reuters journalists who've produced an incredibly strong piece of journalism. So most of what we have really, all that we have, is testimony from survivors in camps in Bangladesh. And so we need to ensure that the information that comes out of the refugee camp is correct, because any false story gives ammunition to those who say this is just some big conspiracy to make Myanmar look bad. All right, at this point, I should mention that the politics behind this tragedy are like 70 years in the making and are extremely complex. What the outside world sees as ethnic cleansing, and I would say by international consensus, the military, and I guess to a lesser degree the government of Myanmar, see defense against a Muslim insurgency, a longstanding one, and they say that terrorism and separatism are just around the corner if they don't act. They feel righteous, do they not? I think they do. I mean, I think there is a sense from the Myanmar side that there is not only this 
imminent terrorist threat and the fact that the Rohingya Muslim plays into this kind of global narrative, but that there is this plot by the West to discredit the government. At the same time, there is this incredibly deep-seated racism against the Rohingya Myanmar. And you will get people who fought for years for democracy, you know, people whom I really used to admire as, as principled freedom fighters against the military junta, which ruled for 49 years, who will say the most awful things about the Rohingya. And it is, it's incredibly depressing. And it's a very, very different parallel reality to what the international community believes. And in that reality, with actual terror being inflicted on hundreds of thousands of people, there are those who would say, well, a few refugee horror stories may be fabricated to one degree or another, but it comports with the larger truth, with a capital T. Do you have any sympathy for that argument? I do. I, I've actually gotten a lot of blowback from Rohingya activists, particularly those in exile, who've been very upset by the story. And they say that it's sort of beside the point to point out cases in which Rohingya have embellished stories or even made up stories because they're already so discriminated against by the Myanmar government. My argument toward that is that Truth is complicated, and we cannot ignore the complexity of the truth. How bad was the blowback? It hasn't been great. I've gotten death threats and rape threats, and people want to do terrible things to my children. The Rohingya are a long-discriminated against, long-persecuted minority to which horrible things have happened. So it is understandable that people would be upset at the same time, I would say that the New York Times has been covering this Rohingya crisis from the very beginning. You know, we've had award-winning photographers dedicated to the story week in, week out. We've had a staff of reporters rotating in and out of both Myanmar and Bangladesh. This one story you know, is a small piece of the puzzle, and maybe it doesn't fit our preconceived notion of what tragedy and horror is, but it's still part of the larger mosaic of the Rohingya experience. I want to ask you about the fact-checking process itself. It is hard for me to imagine the experience for a refugee woman telling you, for example, about a gang rape and having to face some sort of interrogation from you to make sure the details all check out. The greatest thing that I have at the Times is, is the luxury of time. In other words, I can spend days with somebody trying to get the story right. Hours sipping cups of tea, you know, talking about their kids, talking about where they're from. And also having a good interpreter is really important. And I've been lucky to work with local journalists in Bangladesh who have just a knack of being able to make people feel comfortable. And so you're a team and you take time and you try to make the people feel as comfortable as possible. But it is still a terrible feeling when the person realizes that you're asking questions not because you want to know more, but because maybe you might possibly be doubting their story. I referred earlier to the casualties of truth. In the story you unraveled about those four girls, there were direct and ugly consequences for the very people you spoke to, no? Yes, absolutely. I confronted the real father of the four girls, and he was very angry when I did so. 
And we were talking to him actually over the phone at this point. My colleague was speaking to him on speakerphone and, and he was translating as we went on. And I could hear my colleague's voice kind of get higher and higher and he sounded very anxious. And he turned to me, he said, the, the father said that he just beat his wife. And then he said, please don't beat your wife. Please don't beat your wife. And then there was an, a moment of words exchanged that seemed even more anxious. And then my colleague turned to me and said, he says that he's going to be beating his wife tomorrow. In addition to that, one of the other family members, who was a woman, who had told us another sort of part of the truth of this whole situation, ended up being beaten by her husband. And so suddenly my reporting had catalyzed domestic violence in, in two households, which was a pretty awful feeling. Oh, man. You did your due diligence. Others haven't necessarily and have reported some of these exaggerated or invented horror stories uncritically. How much false narrative is floating out there? I think that there are very few cases in which journalists knowingly take a narrative that is false. I think, though, that we descend into refugee camps with hundreds of thousands of people. It's crowded and, you know, people are just struggling to survive. And we come in and ask these incredibly invasive questions. And sometimes it's easier not to ask the follow-up question or you just, you know, you take the story that you've been told and you believe it. So I'm not necessarily blaming other journalists for printing stories that I, I actually know are untrue. I, I think that just maybe they didn't ask the 10th or 12th or you know, 400th question to get there. And, and that's often hard when you don't have time and you've got a deadline and you've got to churn the story out. Well, this gets back to the toll of false narratives and the propaganda value when they're exposed. Do you worry that your piece will have the unintended consequence of sowing doubt about a very real genocide? The Myanmar state-run press are clearly trying to use this as a rationale for denying ethnic cleansing and, and what many people consider to be genocide. When I wrote the story, I knew that there would be the possibility that this would happen. I would say, though, that... An article in the Myanmar State Press is not going to be the factor that is going to change people's hearts and minds in Myanmar. That conversation about the morality of what's happened is something that, that occurred months ago. And I think it is more important to ensure that as we gather facts about what happened, that we ensure that they are gathered in the most accurate way possible. Hannah, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Hannah Beach is Southeast Asia Bureau Chief for The New York Times. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Lana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan, Isaac Napel, and Philip Yiannopoulos. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. 
I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.